The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hi, it's Glenn Lowry. You've tuned into The Glenn Show. I am the Merton Stoltz Professor in the Department of Economics at Brown University and John Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, which sponsors The Glenn Show. And I'm joined by Rajiv Sethi, who is professor in Barnard College, Columbia University of Economics, and an old friend, colleague, collaborator, co-author. We we hung out in Bogota for a couple of summers together. And, you know, I I visited his uh, place on Martha's Vineyard, guys, Martha's (laughs) Vineyard. Uh, but Rajiv is no friend and a fine economist, and uh, I'm just excited to be uh, able to talk with him. I'm sure you're going to enjoy the conversation. Uh, welcome, Rajiv. Oh, thank you, Glenn. It's great to be back. We've had some great conversations over the years, both on your Blogging Heads show and uh, offline. Yeah, indeed. Offline, talking about all manner of things. So uh, this was not on our agenda, and don't answer if you don't want to. The war in Gaza is creating a lot of consternation on college campuses around the country, including Columbia, right there in New York City, with a heavily Jewish population and, you know, home of uh, the late, great Edward Said, amongst others, and, you know, uh, a focal point. Uh, Similar, although perhaps not as intense here at Brown, we're both college professors. What, What do you think our responsibility is? Uh, in our in our respective positions of you know teacher and uh, researchers and in local parentis to a certain degree with the young charges that we have, um, what, how how are you viewing it? What's going on at Columbia, and uh, how are you ta- how are you processing it? What's going on is not that different from what's going on, I suspect, at Brown and other campuses uh, across the country. Uh, there are divisions. Uh, there are people uh, with very, very strong feelings uh, on all sides of this issue and other people who just want to find out um, really where they should stand, how, to, how they should think about it. And our responsibility, I feel, is to to create an environment that uh, in which uh, constructive dialogue can occur, where people can learn, uh, listen, and uh, possibly think about whether they want to uh, modify, adjust their positions. And uh, that hasn't really happened. Uh, you know, the, the environment is much more acrimonious, too, too acrimonious uh, to allow for that. I've heard that things along those lines have been happening at Dartmouth, uh, where our former president, Sian Bailok, uh, went, but partly through sort of uh, conversations and collaborations between heads of Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies departments there. That's the kind of thing I think we should be facilitating, that kind of dialogue. Um, and, you know, we are not finding it on campus, but we are finding it in unusual places. Uh, you, you've been on the Comedy Cellar podcast uh, with Norm uh, Dorman. And and it's been fascinating for me to watch. You know, aside from your podcast, there are maybe three or four that I listen to regularly. And uh, one of them is the Comedy Cellar. And he has had, you know, for example, 
he has strong feelings on this issue. He's, uh, my understanding is that he's a Zionist pro-Israel, um, but he has had Norman Finkelstein on uh, with uh, Eli Lake on exactly the same episode, you know, just having at it uh, with each other. I saw it. That, that was fascinating to me. That's the kind of thing. You ask, what's our responsibility? I feel that these voices, no matter how fringe they may be considered by people who oppose them, ought to be brought into contact with each other. And it's not happening really on campus, um, but it is happening at uh, in various places uh, in the podcast well, it's, space. It's interesting that you mentioned Noam Dorman, yeah. who's the proprietor of Comedy Cellar and uh, host of this podcast that you're talking about. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, I've done shows from the Comedy Cellar on a couple of occasions. Norman and I have gotten to know each other, and I'll tell you a story. Yeah. And, and you're right. He does have a strong pro-Israel position uh, on the conflict. Um, uh, but he is open, and and he is uh, very much driven by facts and, and, and by argument and, you know, is uh, willing to talk with people about it. Uh, his relationship with Finkelstein, for example, <laughs> is almost comic. You know, the Comedy Cellar is an appropriate venue <laughs> to see these two guys going at each other. Yeah. But but the story I want to tell you is that Noam called me up and he said, can I come up and take you and your wife out to dinner? He lives in New York City. I live in Providence, Rhode Island. As you know, it's a three hour drive. Yeah. Uh, he comes up uh, in the company of uh, uh, Coleman Hughes and their respective spouses. Coleman is engaged, his fiance and uh, Noam's wife. And they take uh, Luan and I out to a very nice restaurant, very nice dinner. I don't know, four or five hour dinner. And apropos of what you just said about what the role of the university is at a moment like this, he comes with a bag full of books wow. for me. Wow. You know, uh, to educate me, as it were, about the history and the nuances and whatnot of this, uh, of this conflict, which is 100 years old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've I've been reading some of them. I've been reading Benny Morris's One State, Two State, for example, which is yeah. a review of the arguments about, you know, how you take the, how you create the political foundation for a multi-state, you know, uh, resolution of the uh, Jewish and um, Arab uh, population uh, conflict in Palestine. Anyway, I've been reading the books. I'm getting an education. And Noam's coming on the show. That's uh, the great. Glenn show. That's great. You know, he has had, aside from the episode with uh, Finkelstein and uh, Eli Lake, he has had Rashid Khalidi, you know, um, who's a Columbia professor on the show. The first half hour of that really went nowhere. But then, the, you know, towards the end of that episode, there was some really fascinating exchanges. Uh, and um, I'm just trying to think, oh, Benny Morris. Benny Morris was on his show as well recently. So right. I listened to that podcast. I listened to basically yours, his, uh, um, Tara Henley. My favorite podcast is actually Lean Out, Tara Henley's uh, podcast. I subscribe to her on Substack, even though everything is available free of charge. I think she's wonderful. I don't know it. I, I suppose I should. Lean Out. It's only half an hour an episode. It's just my favorite. And, uh, you know, she talks about, uh, she's from the journalism sphere and somewhat disaffected, but she has very interesting folks on and, uh, and it's, you know, short enough that I can listen to on the way to work. Um, those three, I think, on, on sort of opinion-related podcasts are my favorites, yours, hers, and, and uh, Comedy Seller. And so aside from the Finkelstein, Eli Lake episode, aside from Rashid Khalidi's one, he had Benny Morris on. And Benny Morris is interesting because Benny Morris has characterized, and he did so on, uh, on the show, the situation in the West Bank is uh, as uh, similar to apartheid, based not on race, but on 
nationality. Um, and that, you know, that ruffles uh, quite a lot of feathers. And Benny Morris is not uh, in any sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, affiliated with the Palestinian cause. You know, he's, a, he's very much a respected Israeli historian, but he recognizes that the conditions on the West Bank, not in Israel proper, but on the West Bank, are comparable to uh, to apartheid, and he said so. Uh, now they went back and forth. I mean, I I think no. What's his position on the war on Gaza? Benny Morris was one of the people who uh, I think he he sees. Uh, I don't know what his position is on the conduct of the war. I think he sees the war itself as uh, somewhat necessary. But he uh, he's one of the many eminent signatories to a letter a couple of months before the October 7th attacks, which pointed out that uh, that the conditions on the West Bank were leading to a catastrophe for Israel. So Benny Morris, I find to be an interesting character, but also Rashid Khalidi at Colombia. So they are coming at it from very different. Well, from very different points. Have, have you read Ilan Pape's book at the ethnic cleansing of Palestine? No, I have not. I, I honestly, to tell you the truth, I I've been trying to absorb as much information as I can because I want to be informed about uh, this situation, both historically informed and about events on the ground. But but given all my, you know, I'm interim chair of my department. My chair is on leave. I have, uh, you know, completely swamped with other things. So I can't read a whole yes. lot of books, but I'm trying to trying to listen to the podcasts and newsletters and just try to try to learn as much as I can, as, as indeed I think our students want to do. Now, this is a classic self-censorship situation here. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, Rajiv and I have been talking for, I don't know, 25 years <laughs> about, long? about this sociolinguistic phenomenon of, of not being able, willing to say exactly what you think in social companies for fear of others making an inference about yeah. you based on what you say that is adverse. And uh, all the complexities that go in on that, I have a if I may, classic essay that was published in the journal Rationality and Society in 1994, that's coming up on 30 years, mm -hmm. um, which elaborates on this and others have written about it. And there's a lot, there's a lot to say. Uh, but people want to know what side you're on. You're talking that, I mean, I'm, I'm getting this here at the podcast and I apologize to those who may be followers of The Glenn Show and who are disappointed with the set of guests whom I've had to talk about this issue. I had Omar Bartov, my colleague and historian, yeah. very distinguished historian of genocide studies and of Holocaust studies uh, on the show. Um, he wants the war to stop. He's calling for a ceasefire. I've had Norman Finkelstein on the show, Norman, not to talk about Israel or Gaza, to talk about his book on <laughs> woke uh, intellectual corruption. I, I read that book after uh, listening to him on your episode. Cover to cover, <laughs> I read it. But he's a fierce critic of uh, Zionism, that is, uh, uh, Norman Finkelstein is. I've, I've had uh, John Mearsheimer on the show, the uh, student of international affairs at the University of Chicago, political scientist who written a book called, with uh, Stephen Walt, called The Israel Lobby. Okay. Yeah. Um, not to talk about Israel, to talk about, frankly, about Ukraine. That's what he mostly talked about when I had him on the show. But people know that he's this guy. He has this you know, uh, mark on him in the minds of certain people because of the, the book that, that criticized the Israel lobby yeah. uh, on the show. And then people are saying, like, when are you going to have a pro-Israel person on the show? Yeah. To which I'm saying, okay, fair enough. I will. 
But don't ask me for a loyalty test here. Don't make me have to choose a side about something that's complicated, where in effect, what you're saying is, who are you? My willingness to talk to somebody is now a black mark on me. It has to be countered by talking to somebody else in order to prove to you that I'm on your side. That's what this is about. I object. Yeah. So, um, yeah, lots to uh, process there, Glenn. I, I, going back to your paper, the self-censorship paper, uh, I, you know that, that I think it's one of the best papers written by an economist. I don't call it an economics paper. It's too broad for that. It's just, you know, it just spans a, a you know, huge space. Uh, it's beautifully written, uh, as is your memoir, which we can also talk about if you like. But, well, let's do, let's uh, do. <laughs> but, but on self-censorship, on self-censorship, that is exactly right. Uh, there are many, many ideas in that paper. Some have been developed by theorists like uh, Banerjee and Somanathan and uh, Stephen Morris. Stephen but, Morris, yeah. yeah. But there are other ideas in that paper that have not been developed. And, and one of the most important ones, yeah, I, I discussed this at the first shift in your honor, um, the, uh, as did Jane Humphreys and several other people. But one of the most important ideas is the idea of the ad hominem inference, you know? And, and you said that it is uh, something that is disparaged or looked down upon, but it's completely rational. So when people speak, when people say something, uh, the inference that people draw about their character and values uh, is not necessarily related to the literal content of what they're saying. It is related to who else would say that kind of a thing. What kind yeah. of character? You know, that's a key part of that paper. Now, the fear of being judged, the fear of having one's values and character brought into question uh, causes self-censorship. And and this is very much related to what's going on on campus right now, which is the topic that we started off with. Many, many schools are considering adopting uh, principles that were uh, codified in the Calvin Report, 1967 report out of Chicago, which argued for university neutrality, that the university itself, and even maybe uh, divisions uh, like departments, not make statements on political issues of the day unless they're directly involves, you know, university affairs, uh, uh, so that faculty can be free. The Calvin Report says, you know, faculty ought to be free to take positions, no matter how extreme, no matter how out of step with the mainstream. But in order for them to be free to do so, the university itself cannot take any positions. And this has been uh, adopted by Williams College, for example. Many others uh, have debated adopting something similar. Um, Although at this time, it seems that uh, you know, the accusation is made that it's being adopted opportunistically. You don't want to make a statement on the Middle East right now, so you adopt these principles, and maybe you know, in a year or two, you'll go back to the old ways of doing things. Um, and then the other thing that colleges are uh, thinking about adopting is the Chicago principles. I think this is 1994, uh, another document out of Chicago, which was basically about uh, free expression on campus. And the, the most important component of that, in my opinion, is... Uh, is a condemnation of the heckler's veto, that, that if somebody's invited onto campus, um, no matter how offensive their, their speech may be to some segments of the population, um, you know, those who would like to listen to them ought to be allowed to do so without interference. You can protest uh, you know, in various ways that don't disrupt the event. And Columbia adopted Chicago principles a few years ago. Barnard is, uh, is debating uh, doing so now. Um, but uh, but my position on these two things, I think they're admirable, frankly. I think we should adopt them, but they won't do anything. And the reason I don't think they'll, the effect will be negligible. And the reason I think it will be negligible is precisely because of self-censorship incentives that are in place. You can have the adoption of principles that aim to foster 
dialogue aimed to reduce the pressure to self-censor, but it's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen unless people genuinely feel that they won't be judged, they won't be punished for views that are out of step with, uh, with the majority opinion on campus. And that's going to take something more than just adopting Kelvin or adopting Chicago. I think a couple of things. I think of Tom Schelling, uh, our uh, the great economist Tom Schelling, my friend. Uh, he's he, he passed away in 2016. Yeah. Um, and the problem is self-binding strategy. So you know, the, this is the problem of uh, self-command. You know, how how do I tie yourself to the mast as Ulysses does, so that when uh, the vessel sails past the sirens, he can hear the call. Uh, but not be free to respond to it. Um, and I think there's something, whatever the merits of the principles in terms of the internal structure of the university, there's something to be said for a university announcing in advance. Uh, and and your, your point about, is this a strategic move on their part? They're saying it now because they don't want to answer the question, but having laid that down as a predicate, we don't talk about this, relieves them of the need to respond to someone who says, what's your position? What's your position? And I think that's a, that would be a good thing uh, yep. as a general rule. I, I agree. In fact, I've, I've stated this on my, in my newsletter there, that uh, you can't go back on it. Uh, it's, you know, you might be tempted to do it opportunistically, but there is a commitment there. You would look, you would look ridiculous if two years from now you said, okay, we, we are now no longer abiding by these principles. So, Absolutely right. Uh, making a public statement uh, is is self-reinforcing to some degree. Uh, my point was not so much that we shouldn't do it, or that if it's done, it can be neglected. Say I'm saying it. Won't, I won't. I'm saying it won't make much of a difference precisely because it doesn't really address the issue of self-censorship, because the 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 ad hominem inference remains in place. People are going to judge characters and values based on speech exactly as they were previously. Uh, just committing the university to neutrality, uh, abstaining from abstaining from making statements about the events of the day doesn't change what people feel about the events of the day and how they judge their peers when they make statements about the events of the day. Those things remain in place. Where, in your view, is this most injurious to the quality of public discourse, this uh, fear of the ad hominem inference uh, and this climate of self-censorship? Where? What's, what's me, at stake? Yeah. Oh, what's at stake is uh, everything. I mean, uh, what's at stake is knowledge. I, you, you, you brought this out in your paper. In fact, uh, well, if I, we don't, I mean, if we don't debate these things openly and honestly, um, the distribution of opinion uh, is concealed. Uh, the, the, the distribution of expressed opinion starts to vary from the distribution of uh, held opinion, and. We, we, would you be prepared to say in the context of the war in Israel, Gaza, that the U.S. policy is not as effective as it would be if we didn't have the constraints on our discourse? And Yes, yes, for example. And, yeah. So those are the stakes. Yes, yes. Those are the stakes. The stakes are measured in, in thousands of lives and uh, and in, you know, guns and butter and, you know, Economic how do I, how do I avoid how do I avoid then the thought that maybe the U.S. is uh, unquestioned? We have your back, no matter what position is yeah. not in the interest of the country, but can't be altered because the discourse about the question is 
hemmed in in all kinds of ways along the lines that you're uh, gesturing at here. Yes, exactly. And um, that's exactly I, uh, right. And if you think about a companion paper to yours, when I teach your paper, I teach also Elizabeth Noel Neumann's paper on the spiral of silence. Um, ah, I know, know that paper. Yeah. I know the book. Yeah, and 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 the dam can break, right? Um, it can, you know, um, because you get this variance between expressed opinion and and held opinion. At some point, uh, people suddenly start to uh, uh, to change. You've had, uh, you know, you, you you've had very dramatic changes in opinion, for example, about same-sex marriage. Um, and so it, it, it could happen. But and it happened very quickly. This very is quickly. also Timur Karen. Oh, uh, yeah. Private oh, yeah. truths, public lies. Well, absolutely. Uh, I have a paper, a little talk that I've been giving uh, recently called Naked Emperor Equilibria Can Be Unstable. And it's exactly this point. It's a, it's yeah. a naked emperor equilibrium if the emperor is naked, but no one will say so because no one wants to be thought to be the person who speaks out of turn about the emperor. Yeah. Uh, and that's not stable because as soon as a few people break the taboo, then everybody starts to know that other people know that the naked yeah, emperor yeah. is a fraud. That's and right. the whole thing collapses. That's right. I, I, the way I would put it is that it has, I wouldn't say it's unstable, but it has, uh, it has a small basin of attraction. Uh, you know, a few perturbations can, can, can get you out of the basin of attraction and then you're zooming off somewhere totally different. I accept that as a refinement <laughs> of my argument. <laughs> okay. Okay. So your your interim chair of your department, yeah. uh, is there drama? I mean, I know no. you can't talk about individual cases, but is yeah. it pretty straightforward? Yeah, well, it's just it's the it's the worst kind of chair to be because uh you you know, you have to learn all the recent changes in procedures. Uh there are cases uh, going up, you know, tenure cases, promotion, uh, reappointment and so on. But nothing complicated, nothing acrimonious. It's it's totally fine. It's just that the workload is just very, very high. So you mentioned my memoir. I didn't yeah. want that subject to fall uh, by the <laughs> wayside. Everyone should know that Late Admissions, yeah. Confessions of a Black Conservative, my forthcoming uh, memoir from Norton, uh, May 2024, uh, available for pre-order uh, at your bookseller of choice. Uh, is is coming out and Rajiv has read it and yes. uh, and offered a wonderful uh, blurb review short review uh, that you'll find at the bookseller's webpage uh, about the book and uh, thank you. Oh, thank that. you, thank you for letting me see the early copy. Um, actually, um, you know, I uh, you know, uh, I don't think there's any harm in disclosing this. I tried to get you to change the subtitle. <laughs> you know, I thought that it would put off uh, some people, some readers, and of course, uh, you know, you for very good reason were insistent on keeping it. Um, but it's I would like to note that out of the six people uh, who who blurb the book who are on the on the website, I think only Shelby Steele would would really qualify as a conservative in the popular imagination. I mean, you've got people like Randall Kennedy. You've got um, Mark Lilla. You've got um, Robert who else? Putnam. My goodness, uh, yeah, probably Bob you know Putnam. one of the premier sociologists uh, of his generation. Thomas Thomas Chalvin Thomas Chalvin Williams. Williams. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's one more I'm missing. Uh, Steele, uh, Thomas Chalvin Williams, uh, Shelby Steele. Randall Kennedy, Mark Lidd, and myself. Yeah, that's six. Yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know how I got in there. I'm honored. I'm honored to be <laughs> to be to have been given the opportunity. Um, but I wanted to ask you a couple of things. One thing is, uh, was there a lot that changed? Because of course the blurbs are based on the uh, the copy that you sent out 
originally. You know, uh, did, I, I wanted to ask you whether you had to change a lot to get it into the final form, or aside from the title, um, or whether it's essentially what you had in place uh, to begin with. And then we can talk about the game theoretic aspects of it for a minute, uh, if you like. Well, it's essentially I showed you a kind of first draft. Yeah. And uh, there were some uh, modifications, and but uh, and I can't enumerate them. Right. I, I would. Right. I wouldn't anyway. If yeah. I even if I of remembered, course. I wouldn't. Of course. Yeah. But um, but pretty much intact. What you saw refinements of language and and uh, right. expression in particular places as you go over with a fine tooth comb for the last time, kind of thing. Right. Right. No. Uh, the reason I ask is because it's really fascinating how you framed it. Right. So you begin the book. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get the quote exactly right, but you begin it by saying, you know, we are playing a game, you and I, reader and author, something like that. That's it. Uh, so it's it's strategic. It's, you know, at the, uh, right at the offset, it is about, you know, uh, uh, issues that you have discussed, for example, in your self-censorship paper. It's, you know, wh what are people going to think of me, <laughs> uh, you know, when they read this? And you you make the argument, and it's, it's such an interesting place to start. You make the argument that by disclosing things about your your own life and your own actions that are unflattering, you may be able to convince the reader into taking seriously uh, uh, things that things that you would like them to believe that are that are uh, positive, and that it's a price that one has to pay for the credibility that you seek. And that's such an interesting place to start. And that's why I've said to you, I think, on an email or or maybe a comment on your Substack that um, that there's something in this book also for game theorists. Of course, you know, there's something in it for all kinds of people, but but I loved reading it. I'm just honored that you gave me the opportunity. Uh, well, I'm glad that I did. And thank you for kind words. And yes, the game, the game is a theme that uh, it emerges in multiple places throughout the narrative, uh, including that uh, preface that you just alluded to and which I, Tell the reader, I'm going to be writing between the lines. You're going to be reading between exactly. the lines. And here we are. Uh, and how do you say anything credible when people know that you have an interest to say things that are to your own self-aggrandizement, your own benefit? And uh, the idea of earning your credibility by taking a risk, by, by exposing my own foibles and failings and so on, this kind of idea. Yeah. So that, that, but, you know, the, and I mentioned Tom Schelling earlier. yeah. yeah. Uh, he was a dear friend of mine, a great economist, Nobel laureate, author of The Strategy of Conflict, this classic book uh, about conflict. Clausewitz of our time, you could, you could probably get away with saying about him. Um, and, and he was a mentor of mine when I was a young e economist at Harvard. And um, uh, he, uh, he, he's a game theorist through and through, a, a master of the strategic analysis of complex situations of human interaction. Um, and uh, so I, I deploy this device of the game uh, at multiple levels uh, throughout the, the, the narrative. And it's one of the intellectual sinews, one of the things that's holding the overall construct. Yeah, there's not just a series of anecdotes in which I say this happened, that happened, that happened. There are ideas that are unifying over the arc of my life. I think I've said enough uh, of, about the book, which is not yet available for purchase. but. Uh, you can, you can see uh, you can see the influence of Schelling, no doubt. Yes. So anyway, enough about me. What are you working on? Um, so I am working, Glenn. You know, for a long time now on on um, 
policing related issues. My work is broadly speaking uh, related to information. So, uh, you know, I work on multiple different topics, but um, but uh, I have a book with Dan O'Flaherty. We talked about it on your show. Uh, it came out in 2019, Shadows of Doubt, um, that that looks at interactions between strangers. Uh, when When strangers interact, they have to make sometimes very quick judgments with very significant welfare consequences for both the actor and for the party that is being acted upon. Uh, and this is especially important in the criminal justice context. So uh, with uh, uh, officers and suspects, with offenders and victims, with uh, you know jurors and defendants, judges making bail decisions, uh, prosecutors and witnesses, witnesses and other witnesses, and so on. So they know very little about each other and, and their, their well-being depends very much on having an accurate assessment of, of other people's uh, motives, actions, and, and expectations. And uh, sometimes, and in this kind of situation, stereotypes, uh, both, you know, based on race, gender, ethnicity, but also based on things like tattoos and accents and build and so on, can really affect how interactions play out. So that's 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 one sort of set of themes that I've been exploring with my my colleague and friend, uh, Dan O'Flaherty, for about 10, 15 years now. And uh, we're continuing uh, with that. So I'm still working on the police use of lethal force, uh, but now particularly focused on history. So we have data from the 1930s. One thing uh, that's very difficult if one wants to look at the history of this phenomenon in the US is that data is very patchy. You've got reasonably good data for about the last decade, and then you've got a few things here and there in the 1970s and 80s. And um, it, you know we found in the Schomburg uh, archives here in New York City, data that was collected for uh, Gunnar Myrdal's uh, American Dilemma by a sociologist called Arthur Raper. And we digitized it and, and, and we're looking at it. And, you know, there. This is data on what, Rajiv? This is data on police use of uh, lethal force in the 1930s, 35 to 40. Um, and uh, it is... Wow. It is... Uh, and, and, you know, the, the departments were very honest about it at that time. They were, they were not uh, interested in obfuscating anything. And Arthur Raper wrote to them and they wrote back and gave him uh, uh, data. And this is only 228 departments, mostly across the South. So we can't say much about how things have changed in the country as a whole. But we're looking, Dan and I and a bunch of our research assistants are trying to see, you know, what has happened in these agencies and what can one say about a century later? Because we do have good data now for the last decade or so. So that's that's one of the things that I've been looking at, uh, continuing the work that was in that book, especially the, the chapter on lethal force. Uh, All right, folks, let's talk about life insurance. It's very important to any family's financial planning. The breadwinner or winners, if something should happen, will leave their family in a potentially difficult financial situation if they don't have life insurance. It's important to think about this before you get too old because the rates for insurance typically increase as you get older. You should think about making life insurance part of your financial planning this year. And you can do that more easily by shopping with Policy Genius than any other way I know. Policy Genius can help you find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance means peace of mind for you and your loved ones. The expenses that your family must deal with 
expenses like mortgage payments, credit card payments, car loans, the cost of college will be covered even if, in the worst of cases, something should happen to you. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies, and the team at Policy Genius consists of licensed experts. It's on hand to help talk you through the difficult process of purchasing life insurance. I have life insurance because I'm employed by Brown University, but the fact is that I'll be retiring soon and my insurance won't follow me. I will be in the market for purchasing a term policy to protect my family. And I'm going to use Policy Genius to help me find the right deal. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare insurance quotes from the top insurers in the country with just a few clicks. And to find the lowest price, you can comparison shop without leaving your study. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough coverage uh, for your family's needs, and it may not follow you when you leave your job, as mine will not follow me. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. The licensed award-winning agents at Policy Genius can help you find the best fit for your needs. And they work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another. You can trust their guidance. Small wonder then that they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money. Provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. So that's uh, that's one thing. And the other thing I'm, I'm looking at is uh, information related also. It's about the aggregation of information through prediction markets. So this sounds like you know, <laughs> night and day, apples and oranges were very different, but they're, they're linked together with the informational uh, story. And so I've been looking at prediction markets um, as forecasting mechanisms, uh, especially, and that interest arose during COVID, actually. Uh, I've been looking at prediction markets for many years, but during COVID, a large number of models made forecasts of uh, COVID uh, cases, deaths, uh, hospitalizations, and submitted them to the CDC at one point, maybe uh, 80 or more models were submitted and they were they were in such wide disagreement with each other and kept changing from one week to the next. Uh, these are basically epidemiological models that had been modified in one way or another. And um, I have looked previously at alternative forecasting mechanisms through markets, prediction markets, uh, where one doesn't pre-select the variables as you do in a model. You don't fit it to historical data. Anything Anything that somebody thinks in their head is relevant the future can be expressed in a market price and uh, trying to compare uh, compare the predictions of markets and models. So that's another thing I'm, I'm working on, trying to look at how markets and models have performed relative to each other in forecasting elections uh, 2016 onwards. So this interests me. Uh, what little I can remember of my econometrics uh, instruction about uh, parametric specifications versus non-parametric uh, about not committing yourself to a particular yeah. structure that you're then trying to get the right uh, 
you know, parameters on, yeah. but uh, rather leaving it open to uh, a kind of, uh, um, ag- uh, I'm, I'm not even sure how to express it, uh, but I, I detected something of that in what, in what you just said. Uh, yes. That modeling involves committing to untested, uh, non-empirical, uh, but consequential specification decisions. Yeah. Yep. It's linear or it's not linear. There are six or there are 26 things on the right-hand side of a regression equation or whatever. That's right, that's right. Whereas the kind of information aggregation that a market allows is based upon the variation in the population of individuals' own assessment devices, yeah. which can be all over the place and are not tied down by any one exactly right. framework. So, exactly right. So, so um, you know, a couple of examples from work that I had a while ago with David Rothschild at Microsoft Research. If you think about, let's say, debate performance, this is very difficult to put in a model of election outcomes. Um, but if you looked at markets during the first Obama-Romney debate, uh, they moved very substantially. Obama was uh, quite unprepared. He made up for it in the subsequent two debates, but Mitt Romney was thought to have won quite quite convincingly that uh, that debate, and it moved uh, prices in the market. And you'd think intuitively, yes, if debates matter, that ought to happen. But there's no model that would pick that up until such time as the you know as it uh, appeared into the usual data, opinion polls, you know, people's uh, reactions to the debate, uh, data on on uh, voting intentions, and so on. And the other thing we looked at was uh, the you know when Osama bin Laden was captured and killed. You know, how can you put that into a model? Those kinds of variables, and that moved the markets very substantially. That 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 caused Obama's re-elect uh, likelihood to to jump up in prediction markets. And uh, and of course, you'd think, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But you can't you can't Wait, put uh, that in as a variable ahead of that. There's something I'm I'm not understanding here. So uh, Osama bin Laden is killed. Obama is running for re-election, yeah. and there's an election outcome. He wins. And the and the question is, what's the relationship between the killing of Osama bin Laden and the outcome of the election? And what we're doing is inferring from how the killing of Osama bin Laden changed the prediction market's assessment of the likelihood that Obama would win. Correct. And we're concluding from that that, in fact, the prediction market's assessment and the electoral outcome are tied together in some way. That's right. That's right. So it's that I, last step that I'm not getting. Okay, let me let me let me use a very contemporary example. There's a market. Uh, unpredicted for the vice presidential choice of the Republican nominee. All right, there's, there's. Yeah. I can't think of a model really that would give you that because it's, uh, it's based on private thoughts that are going on probably in Donald Trump's head. Um, now, in that in that market, the leader with about twenty four percent probability of being selected is Elise Stefanik. You know, many people would consider that quite reasonable based on recent events, the congressional testimony and her endorsement. Yeah and her uh, introductory speech in New Hampshire and so on. And then uh, you have got, um, I forget now uh, the name, the governor of uh, South Dakota, I think it is, uh, who's second, and then you've got Tim Scott, and then you've got um, Vivek Ramaswamy. I I personally don't think those last two uh, are going to be selected, but those are the Mm -hmm. four leaders. And you have got a market and it's a high frequency forecast. So every every few minutes it could change, right? Depending on events happening. And, and are you, people coming in and out, by the way, can you buy uh, forward yeah. on and, and so on? So you can make yeah, money are, as yeah. the thing is fluctuating. 
is a completely liquid. Uh, you can you can you can sell uh, you can buy a contract and sell it a fraction of a second later. In fact, there are algorithms that do that in some markets uh, that that you know try to predict make short term movements in prices and predict short term movements in prices and trade accordingly. But uh, but uh, that's right. They are completely liquid. They appear to be a market, so the exchange doesn't take a position. So if I bet, so I'll give you an example. Uh, so I guess uh, for uh, for uh, Trump and Biden, they're in the mid forties, uh, mid to low forties. The likelihood of being president, right? Uh, um, you can interpret these roughly as probabilities, and the reason you can is because uh, prices are forced by trading activity and arbitrage considerations to add up to one. Uh, you know, you have to make some adjustment for the fee structure, but. So suppose that, you know, there's a... I mean, people who are not economists may not get that. Yeah. People are buying, in effect, a a, a, a piece of paper that yeah. says, should this outcome occur, you will be paid $1. And the question is, what does yeah. that piece of paper cost? Exactly, exactly. So right now so you among can all buy... the possible options, the sum of that cost has to be one. Otherwise, there'll be an opportunity to just by buying and selling these pieces of paper alone yeah. to make money. You'd uh, you'd you'd make money. Suppose su- you know. Suppose that the price of the contract to buy uh, Biden was fifty five cents, right, yeah. uh, for a dollar, and the price for Trump was also fifty five cents. It's not. It's about forty five for both of them. But suppose it were. Then what I'd do is I'd take the opposite position. I'd sell both. I'd sell both, and I'm basically buying a dollar ten uh, for a dollar um, because. Because one of them is not one of them is going to lose. One of them is going to lose. One of them is going to lose. So that activity, that trading activity, forces the price uh, prices into alignment in a way that uh, you can interpret as probabilities, with some adjustment for fees. Um, But uh, right now, you have got uh, Biden and Trump neck and neck on these markets at around. When I interpret them as probabilities, whose probability is it objective or subjective? Is it the, as it were, median buyers? estimate that I'm assessing when I use that's, these prices? Uh, that's that's actually a very deep question, uh, Glenn. Uh, people often will interpret it as as the belief of the market, the set of participants yeah. collectively in some fashion. What it is actually, you know, the price at any point in time uh, uh, stays where it is, right, to the extent that it does, because people who disagree with the price have already accumulated positions and hit their risk limits. So imagine, you know, just because the price of uh, the Biden contract is 45 cents, right? And by the way, uh, you know, we're not talking about dollars and cents here. There are over a hundred million dollars of uh, open interest in this market. So, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, you can buy thousands of contracts. So suppose the price of the Biden contract is 45 cents. If I buy a contract uh, at uh, at 45 cents, um, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm betting against somebody who's buying the opposite contract that Biden is going to lose and are paying and is paying 55 cents. The exchange will collect 45 from me, collect 55 from them. And then if Biden wins, I get the dollar. And if Biden loses, they get the dollar. So the exchange is not holding a position at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what does the probability of the 45 actually mean? The 45 doesn't mean that everybody agrees that Biden's probability is 45. It means that those who think that he's got a 50 or 60% chance of uh, winning, have already bought a whole bunch of contracts and they don't want to buy more because it's, you know, they've, they've hit their risk limits. And those who think that 45 is too low, they would rather buy the other side of the contract. They've hit their risk limits. And so really, it's a, it's a balance. The price is a sort of a balance of beliefs. Uh, well, so I yeah. want to observe that there is a model here. Uh, it's not a model of the phenomenon whose probability is being assessed, but yeah. it's there's a model of the... Pre- 
of the behavior of the people who are market participants. Exactly. Exactly. Your invocation of risk limits suggests yeah. to me a whole decision theoretic framework where yeah. a person is trying to decide how much. And if they were risk neutral, there would be no limit to how much they would be willing to buy. But of except, course, no one is the budget risk No, no, even if they're risk oh, neutral. The budget they're... constraint, yeah. And can't borrow because... because <laughs> they can't borrow. People, yeah, yeah, people yeah. are going to say, I'm not, you know, they're going to look for collateral. <laughs> yeah, you can borrow. You can borrow to buy stocks. You can buy stocks on margin, but the exchange will not uh, let you buy, most exchanges will not let you buy these contracts yeah. on margin. Um, but because the worst case loss is zero. I mean, you, you know, you could end up uh, with nothing. But um, but you're exactly right. Um, but what's interesting is, so then that, that may, raises a puzzle, right? Um, because your average participant is not your average voter. And the participants in these markets are young, they are male, they may ideologically skew one way or the other. Um, yeah, that's you know, they're not typical of a voter. It's not like an opinion poll where you have to wait it to get, uh, you know, if you take an opinion poll and it's, uh, it's let's say, 60% male, you, you, you want to do some re-weighting and upweight the, the women who are responding in your sample to get a representative right. poll. Not so in markets. So, And so what happens is that they disagree. People, people, you know, they may be similar demographically, but they disagree. And then there are a few people, David Rothschild and I estimated less than 10% who are willing to switch positions. They'll go, you know, they'll bet on Trump sometimes, they'll bet on Biden sometimes, or maybe RFK. They're willing to switch positions based on uh, whether they think the price is too high or too low. Um, and those are the people who really bring a lot of information into the market. And the empirical question is, well, okay, how do they perform? You can measure performance uh, through mean squared error, a Breyer score, for example. Uh, but what we have proposed, I proposed in prior work, is something called a profitability test. So imagine that there's a, a model. So you have models coming out of, let's say, 538, or The Economist had a model uh, of, uh, of uh, the last presidential election. Uh, you can ask yourself the following question. Suppose I believe the model. And I trade based on the model. I, you know, I endow a, a hypothetical trader with a budget constraint and with the risk preferences and say, okay, trade based on the model. If you just every day update your position based on what the model is saying, are you going to make or lose money? You know, if you make money, then the model is better than the market. If you lose money, uh, uh, the market is better than the model. That's a, sort of a test of whether markets perform better than models. So that's the kind of thing that I'm exploring. You write about this at your... Uh at your blog, Imperfect Information, yes. Yes. which people can find at Substack, yes. and which is full of all kinds of interesting things. And I, I love this about you, that as uh, life goes by, uh, it's not all just technical stuff. Some of it is just reporting on uh, on the human condition. Uh, your, your tribute to Bob Solo really moved me, for example. Robert Solo um, yeah. passed away recently. Uh, well into his 90s, a great economist, Nobel honoree, uh, my dissertation advisor at MIT back in the 1970s. But you uh, did some research, uh, I, unless it all came off the top of your head, and found out <laughs> who his students were and who students of his students were and students of the students oh, yes, of his students. Oh, yes, yes, oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Now I remember. Yeah, I was I was trying to remember what I wrote. You know, sometimes I, I, I they turn out to be a who's who of the economics profession in the yeah, last half yeah. century. It's, a, it's extraordinary. <laughs> of course, of course, you are you are one of them, right? You're, yeah, I so am one a, of them. So there I is a, um, that's right. So let me just, uh, by way of background, say that um, uh, Bob Solo's granddaughter Anna Solo Collins was one of our students, and he came and gave a public lecture in our department a few years ago, and I met him. 
And so I'll, t- I'll tell you about the family tree, the intellectual family tree that you just mentioned. But I want to first also mention that I spoke to him about you because you had mentioned Bob Solo in your in your book, uh, uh, The Voice Lectures, Anatomy of Racial Inequality. And you had mentioned, uh, uh, you had thanked him and mentioned him. And inspiring, the inspiring uh, leadership or something to that effect. Yeah, something to that effect. You know, you had dedicated the book, I believe, to Schelling. Um, mm-hmm. But you had mentioned Solo in the preface, uh, uh, and so I, and he remembered receiving the book from you, I think. But he, I, th- I think he may not even have noticed that he was mentioned. So he said, "Oh, he's going to go back and take a look." So that's just a little anecdote. Um, but he, you know, that's the only time I think I've met him. But regarding the family tree, so that's really interesting. So there is uh, for every discipline, uh, not every, but I think most disciplines, uh, not just economics, you can go online, and if people go and look at this post, they can find the link to it. Uh, you can find. Uh, um, people and their graduate students, the, you know, if they supervise the dissertation, like Solo supervised yours, uh, then you are treated as a, uh, as a descendant, an intellectual descendant of him, a child, if you like. And then if people, you know, if you supervise somebody's uh, dis- uh, uh, dissertation, for example, Yang Chao Kim, uh, whom we are both working together with right now, yeah. he, he would be a grandchild then of Solo. And you can have great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren and it's extraordinary. I think, you know, Oliver Hart, for example, I think he's a great, great grandchild. It's really, it's, it's really astonishing. Um, and then people I know quite well, Naveen Kartik and Marina Halak. Uh, Marina was here at Columbia. Naveen is still here. They are a great, great grandchildren. <laughs> and so you get this. And I, you know, I don't believe that there is anyone. I don't think there's anyone who comes close to Solo in just the total number of people uh, uh, that occupy this family tree who have gone on to do, you know, really yeah, significant things. things. It's, 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 it's astonishing. You know, Martin Weitzman and Peter Diamond, and I, you know, I could go on, but it's there in the post. And I yeah. just, I just played around with this family tree for maybe half an hour or so, but, but there's a lot there that I wasn't able to capture. This is an interesting window on the network structure of elite economics, it seems to me. Um, yeah, if, yeah. if you look at, and uh, you will be the person bet more than I because you're more data-driven than I am who would get on top of this. But, you know, there are a few top departments, yeah. you know, 10, 15, that produce a outsized proportion of the people who are distinguished fellows of the association, who are, uh, you know, editors of the journals or who, who, you know, and various other accolades. And a person could say, not every clerk at the Supreme Court has to come from Harvard or Yale. Yeah. Not not every person who's a, a fellow of the Econometric Society or who had good subject editing the Econometrica has to be at MIT or Stanford. Uh, but they are. I mean, yeah, disproportionately. So one consequence of which will be that the family tree that you just got through elaborating for someone who is right at the center of things, as Bob Solo was, right at the center of things at MIT, uh, will will have this quality that you're talking about. And my question for you, because I know this is the kind of thing you think carefully about, is is that a good thing? It's not a good thing. Um, but at the same time, I want to say that um, among those in these institutions, Solo is an outlier. Um, he's an outlier. There, you know, there are many, many people who are at the center of things uh, You know, at these institutions. It's very hard to find anybody even close to Solo, except maybe if you think of a contemporary, it would be Daron uh, Asimoglu. Uh, he has a large number of students. And in fact, yeah. One of them, Glenn, I, 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 I want to mention this, was our student in Bogota, Pascual Restrepo. 
oh. uh, uh, was our student in Bogota. As an undergraduate, he yeah. then he then went. Uh, he then was our TA the second time we taught together. He was, and then he went to. Uh, you know, I wanted him to apply to Columbia, but he refused. He, he didn't want to. He only applied to I think uh, uh, Stanford, well, Chicago, MIT, Harvard, and NYU. That's that's it. <laughs> Those were the only not, ones. Not even UCLA. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. which has a lot of students from Columbia. <laughs> yeah, he got he got. Uh, that's right. He got into everything except I think NYU. NYU may have. You know, As thought, I recall, Rajiv, he participated in Switzerland in a mathematics Olympiad. Yeah, he won. He, uh, he, he right won after a medal. he finished his undergraduate studies, before yeah, he, he began PhD yeah, yeah, work at a, MIT. Yeah, he was a medal winner. Uh, so, Pascual, we had you know, yeah, high hopes for. He uh, worked with Daron. He what? went to BU, and um, I, I, I believe he's moving, but I don't want to say it publicly. I don't know if it's public yet. Uh, but, but he got tenure at BU. Oh yeah, easily. I think so. I think so. Uh -huh. I think he's got a tenure of at a. At a very prestigious At a really place. good place. That right now, I don't want to say. And you don't publicly. want to say. Yeah. No, of but, course. Uh, but uh, now, now to your much more important question, is it a good thing? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think that in terms of graduate uh, student selection, uh, criteria are really too narrow, um, that, that people are too similar to each other in terms of what they bring to the table. Um, I mean, this can take us to a discussion of marriage. Which, which like. is mathematical, analytic, Yes, uh, chops, yes, but not so much uh, historical or sociological exactly, exactly. or whatever. And a large department, a large prestigious department has the space to take a couple of chances uh, to get a, a couple of people who may not fit the uh, regular profile. Now, they're going to struggle through the first year sequence because the first year sequence is itself extremely mathematical. And I've taught in the sequence. Of it Columbia. should be. Um, I think it's I think that is it's excessive. I think people learn things and I've taught the math methods course at the PhD level at Columbia and also the micro. Um micro, okay, uh, you know, I think people do need to learn, but I think there are things uh, that you know, people who go on to do experimental economics or empirical uh, economics or they don't you have know, to know. causal inference, yeah, there, there are things that they don't they really don't have to know. Um, you know, Burgess theorem of the maximum or uh, you know, uh, advanced uh, topological concepts, but but uh, so, so that, there's an issue of the curriculum. You know, you may want to rethink that, but I do think there isn't enough variation among those who are selected among graduate students. And then going on to the profession as a whole, I think that faculty, when you're hiring faculty, it's worth taking a chance. It's really worth taking a chance on a couple of people who are coming out of programs that are not elite, not at the top, if they show potential, even if, uh, even if their dissertation is a bit rough around the edges because they, 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 they haven't uh, been, uh, you know, been guided in the latest uh, uh, methodologies and the latest ways of doing things. They may just still have the potential to succeed. And this is very personal for me. You know, my PhD is from the new school and uh, there, are, there are departments. I, I got lucky. I mean, I just got very lucky with publications and had a, had a job offer, which I, you know, allowed me then at University of Vermont, which allowed me to publish a couple of things and managed to get, you know, uh, quite... Uh, you know, quite a few papers published in a way that allowed me to get tenure and so on. So I've come from outside, but I take a lot of pride. I take a lot of pride, maybe more than the average person. Um, if I get a, a paper in a top journal, uh, you know, I've got, in, you know, don't want to recite a CD or anything like that, but an Econometrica or an AER or JP publication to me means something really quite different <laughs> from somebody whose advisors and whose advisors' advisors have been publishing that routinely. So. I think people ought to take a chance. Uh, you know, you know. I just thought of something ironic, uh, uh, Rajiv, because you talked about the police use of lethal force. Yeah. 
and uh, Roland Fryer has written on that subject, yes, and you and yes. he have been had public disputation yes, about it. Yes, uh, but you have this in common. Yes, his PhD is from Penn State. Yes, and he did a postdoc at Chicago, but he he clawed his way into the upper upper ranks of the Ivy yes. League and so forth. Uh, yes, I the skin of his teeth and the wit and the quality of his mind and and the luck being in the right place at the right time and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you guys have a lot in common in that respect. I, I, I agree with you. I, I, and in fact, I admire Roland for that. And he, yes, I had concerns about uh, his paper on the police use of lethal force, uh, yeah. uh, about generalizing because I found enormous geographic variation. Let me tell you one thing that your listeners may not know. You're more likely to be killed by police if you're white in Houston than if you're black in New York City. You're, you're much more likely to be killed if you're white in Phoenix uh, then, 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 even if you're back in Chicago, which has got a very high use of uh, exposure. That's unbelievable. I'm telling you, I'm telling you that, that geographic variation actually swamps the racial uh, disparity. And, That's a mind-boggling I, statement. Yeah, there's a there's a paper of mine with Dan O'Flaherty coming out in the annual review of criminology, in January 2024 edition. It's uh, it's online already in an early version. There's a table in there where people can look. This is from Washington Post data, but you can look at Guardian data. You can look at other uh, crowdsourced data sources. The geographic variation is completely and utterly staggering. And that's one reason why I thought a study that was focused on Houston may not give you yeah. uh, generalizable uh, implications. That's for a the fair world. point. Uh, now, do you think, what is this uh, revealing to us? Is it about culture that varies geographically? Yeah, yeah. so I believe, uh, I believe that there are four things that are crucially important. Um, yeah, um, organizational culture, selection practices, um, you know, the way in which, uh, you know, um, hiring, so, uh, I'm, yeah, I shouldn't have said four, <laughs> I can't think of four at the top of my head, but we've, we've listed, <laughs> we've listed, uh, I, I, I do think that departments vary very, very substantially and in ways that are correlated, uh, regionally, but, but, uh, Phoenix, the use of force in Phoenix, New Mexico is a state with one of the highest rates of uh, deadly force in the, in the U S. Uh, in fact, if you look at every single uh, state, um, with, you know, take the top six or seven states with the highest use of deadly force, they all have uh, smaller uh, than the national average black populations. And Nevada comes pretty close, but states like New Mexico, Arizona, uh, California, um, these these states uh, have extraordinarily high use of deadly force compared to the New England states and even the northeastern states, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New York, and New Jersey. Um, there's this enormous difference. And so, uh, in fact, when you aggregate nationally, this is one of the things that I, um, you know, I have said many times and is, uh, is discussed in my book with Dan, is that if you just take aggregate statistics, you say, okay, you know, black exposure to lethal force relative to white is 2.5 to 1 or 3 to 1 nationally. That's almost meaningless, um, you know, because you have something uh, going on that's referred to by statisticians as Simpson's paradox, where, you know, the variation across agencies is so great. And, and the demographics of the agencies at the high end of lethal force is so different from the ones at the low end, that when you aggregate, you really, you really miss the picture. So I mentioned Houston and Phoenix and Los Angeles as being very high lethal force agencies. Uh, now, people who are black or Latino in these agencies have even higher exposure than white, substantially higher, actually. But it's just that not that many people live there. The, 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 the populations 
yeah. you know, the non-white populations are smaller than, than in, in Chicago and New York City. So aggregates don't make a whole lot of sense and individual case studies don't make a whole lot of sense. But anyway, maybe maybe this is a rambling well, too no, much. It's interesting <laughs> what, what you've been working on, geographic variations and yeah. police use of force, historical data that's been uncovered for New York City about the police use of lethal force. Yes. Uh, prediction markets. It's all very interesting. But I got to ask you another kind of question before we close. Please do. I know you follow politics closely and you will not have failed to notice being a man of Indian descent yourself that two of the six, seven, eight people who ran for the Republican uh, nomination for president were uh, Indian American. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? Is that a harbinger of things to come? Uh, is that a coincidence? Uh, are you proud? <laughs> no, I, no, I'm not. <laughs> they're, uh, they're, they're Republicans after all, and you're not. You're, you're not. No, no, I'm not. Uh, uh, yeah, even if they were, you know, so for example, one politician that I actually admire quite a lot is Ro Khanna. He's uh, mm -hmm. out of uh, out of Washington. Uh, but no, I don't take pride uh, with regard to ethnicity. I honestly, I have, I don't know, this might sound sort of cliched or, but I really, I really believe and, you know, you know, you know, my personal story, you know, you know, uh, my wife is African-American and I am, I've chosen to be American uh, very self-consciously, very deliberately. My approach to people as much as I can is what you might call, you know, sort of transracial humanism. It's it's just, I just don't take particular pride in the accomplishments of uh, even the Indian cricket team. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure really how to put this. I, I, I feel that culture... One of my favorite essays, I'll just mention this, um, favorite pieces of writing ever is this essay by Ralph Ellison, 1917 Time Magazine, which I think I've mentioned to you before. And, he, you know, he talks about literature and he talks about American literature and he tries to imagine what it would have been like if, if the influences were only European and, and, and you get to a totally different place. So he talks about Mark Twain, for example, and, you know, the effects of, uh, 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 you know, the, the, the kinds of things, whether it's Faulkner, whether it's uh, Hemingway, yeah. you know, I just, just American literature is something very, very different from anything that could have possibly evolved in Europe. And I see this as a blending of cultural influences yeah. uh, in a way that makes it almost meaningless. I, I don't even like to talk about the United States as a Western country. <laughs> we have, we have sort of tangled on this before, I think. To me, it's 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 a confluence of forces and cultures in a way that you can't really separate out. So I don't know if that answers in any way your question. I don't take particular pride in Ramaswamy or Haley or even Rokhanna, who I actually actually like uh, quite a bit. Um, it, I just it don't. It does I answer my question, and and uh, it, it's a fine and defensible answer. And I have been known to advocate for transracial humanism myself. On I think so. Yes. I, I think that's one of the things I think that, that draws me to you also. You know, I just think that, uh, yeah. yeah. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for your kind words about my book. And uh, apropos of what we've just been saying about America, what I loved about your comment, you say the book is revealing and then you have a number of developments about how it's revealing, revealing about the South Side of Chicago in the 1950s, 60s, and so on, revealing about myself and my own struggles, but revealing about America. Absolutely. Most of all, revealing about America. And if I yeah. can have written a book yeah. 
that the reader will come to the conclusion that, my, I know my country better now than I did before I started, I'd be very, very happy. You know, Glenn, if I could just uh, 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 quote the last sentence of that blurb, you know, this deeply American story, most of all, this deeply American story is revealing out America. Your story could not happen anywhere else in the world, for better or worse. And, and it's an American story through and through. And it reveals the, the, the country that made you. It's just, uh, I, I, I think people will enjoy this and learn from it. And uh, it's, it's going to sell a lot of copies. <laughs> he said it, I didn't. But from his lips to God's ears. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rajiv. It's uh, been, very good it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Bye.